Now let me read verse 1 of chapter 27. Jotham was twenty and five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did, howbeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord, and the people did yet corruptly. Now there's something here about this man's quite interesting. He was a good king. Now we've had three good ones right in a row, and that is unusual. And he didn't go into the temple. Now there's a background for it. His father went into the temple and was made a leper, but he went in the wrong way. And this boy, Jotham, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he stayed away from the temple. You can't help but have a sympathy for him, but it set a very bad example for the nation. And as a result, the people did yet corruptly. They didn't turn to God. Here was a man with a tremendous opportunity to lead people back to God. And he had a hang-up. His father was made a leper in the temple, and he didn't want to go in the temple. And there are a great many people today that rest on that type of thing. They are kept away from God's house by prejudice. Oh, the number of folk that I've met that have dropped out of God's service because of prejudice, something that happened years ago or happened to a loved one. I know a young man. He was a young man when I knew him back in the 40s here in Pasadena. He was a son of a great Baptist preacher in Texas. And I got acquainted with this young man. He was really living it up. He and I used to play volleyball together and handball together way back in those days. And I tried to talk with him. And when I did, he said, Now, listen, don't you talk to me about religion. I know as much about it as you do. And then he told me the story of how a bunch of deacons had mistreated his father. And he said, I never again will darken the door of a church. May I say, I think he's wrong. I told him that. But very candidly, there was a background for it. And that was this boy Jotham here. He had a real background for it. Now, he did certain things. Verse 3, he built the high gate of the house of the Lord. And on the wall of Ophel he built much. Moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah. And in the forests he built castles and towers. And I'd have you know that that land in that day was wooded. Today the hills are bare for the most part. And they are setting out trees again. But back in the days that was the land flowing with milk and honey. And this man built castles up among the trees on the hills. He was a great builder, you see. I guess he's the man that started building these subdivisions. Now we find here he fought also with the king of the Ammonites, prevailed against him. He was a good general like his father. Verse 6, So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord is God. But he had that hang-up, as we've seen. Verse 7, Now the rest of the acts of Jotham, all his wars and his ways, lo, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was five and twenty years old when he began to reign. He reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And Jotham slept with his fathers, 
And they buried him in the city of David, and Ahaz's son reigned in his stead. Now, here's a young man. Only one chapter is given to his reign. He could have been a great king, but he let a hang-up. He let a prejudice prevent him from being a great king and doing great things for God. This is all that he did. Now, when we come to chapter 28, we follow the reign of Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. But he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made also molten images of Balaam. Well, I think we knew that sooner or later we'd get a bad king, and this is the one. Ahaz was a bad king. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and that meant evil. He burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnon, and he burnt his children in the fire. That means that he offered them on a red-hot altar, which actually was an idol that was heated red-hot. Human sacrifices were offered in that day. After the abomination of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel, he sacrificed also and burnt incense in the high places on the hills and under every green tree. Now, Ahaz went completely into idolatry and plunged the southern kingdom into idolatry. And as a result, we now begin to see the sad future of the southern kingdom. Already the northern kingdom has gone into captivity in Assyria. Now God is giving a warning to the southern kingdom that they likewise will follow into captivity, not to Assyria. It was to Babylon later on. Now I read it, verse 5. Wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria, and they smote him and carried away a great multitude of them captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who smote him with a great slaughter. Now, God opens up the doors, as it were, to his nation, to his people, and permits the enemy to come in. Syria now has come down, and for the first time, why, the wall is breached into the southern kingdom, and many are taken captive. Now, the sad part was that the northern kingdom had joined with Syria in making this attack, and we find that many had been taken into captivity of the southern kingdom by the northern kingdom. That is, Israel had taken Judah into captivity. Now, will you note, for Pekah the son of Remaliah slew in Judah 120,000 in one day, which were all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. And Zechariah, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Maaseiah the king's son, and Azrakam the governor of the house, and Elkanah that was next to the king. And the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and took also away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. Now, this is a very sad plight for the southern kingdom. 
And God permitted it because of the fact of the sin of Ahaz. And the people had plunged into idolatry in a very real way. Now, God sends a prophet to speak to Israel because of their extreme cruelty to their brethren. Verse 9, But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded. And he went out before the hosts that came to Samaria and said unto them, Behold, because the Lord God of your fathers was wroth with Judah, he hath delivered them into your hand. And ye have slain them in a rage that reacheth up into heaven. And now ye purpose to keep under the children of Judah and Jerusalem for bondmen and bondwomen under you. But are there not with you, even with you, sins against the Lord your God? You see, God had forbidden that, actually. God did not permit this to take place at all. And he said that they were never to take their brethren into slavery. Verse 11, Now hear me, therefore, and deliver the captives again, which ye have taken captive of your brethren. For the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Then certain of the heads of the children of Ephraim. Now, we have quite an exercise in pronunciation here. But a group of the leaders now, They stood up against them that came from the war, and said unto them, Ye shall not bring in the captives hither. For whereas we have offended against the Lord already, ye intend to add more to our sins and to our trespass. For our trespass is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil, before the princess and all the congregation, and the men which were expressed by name rose up, took the captives, and with the spoil clothed all that were naked among them, and arrayed them and shod them, and gave them to eat and to drink, and anointed them, and carried all the feeble of them upon asses, and brought them to Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brethren, Then they returned to Samaria. Now you see, having taken their own brethren, this great company into captivity, they had evil thoughts of making them slaves. Now God told them that they cannot do that. This prophet said, The judgment of God and the wrath of God is upon you because of this. And I said a moment ago that the northern kingdom had gone into captivity. They were on the verge of going into captivity, and they went in, by the way, at this particular juncture. And this, of course, is one of the things that contributed to the fact God permitted them to go into captivity was the treatment they gave of their brethren. Now, Judah was actually in a very sad plight at this time. And if it had not been for the fact that God intervened, they would almost have been eliminated as a nation at this time. And this, of course, weakened them a great deal and laid them open to further invasion. And so what you have now in the rest of this chapter is this. At that time did King Ahaz send unto the kings of Assyria to help him. For again the Edomites had come and smitten Judah and carried away captives. You see, God just opened the floodgates now and let the enemy come in because of their sin. 
And actually, wars are the result of sin. James asked, you remember the question, why are there wars among you? Well, there are a great many answers to that question today, of course. Why are there wars among us? From whence come wars and fightings among you? And then he answers it. Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your member? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have. Now, as long as there's sin in the heart of man, he can't have peace. He can't have any kind of peace. Peace with God, peace in his own heart, and peace with his fellow man. There must be the settling of this sin question. And so, because of the sin of these people, they'll not have peace. And they made a big mistake. Ahaz, instead of turning to God, he turned to Assyria and rested in Assyria. And as a result, why, Assyria let them down. Assyria did not make their treaty good. And you can't expect nations to make their treaties good. And somebody says, why not? Well, very simply, as long as you've got men that are sinners, that means they are liars, and that means that you cannot trust them. Put not your trust in man. Isaiah warned us of that. God warns us of that, and we're to put our trust in God. Now, Ahaz put his trust in the king of Assyria, and Assyria let him down. He had sent over a generous offering. He actually personally took wealth out of the palace and sent it to the king. king accepted it, but he never sent any help, and he didn't have to because he was a powerful king, and poor Ahaz is now a very weak king. And as a result, there comes in the enemy again, and many are taken captive. So this ends the very sad and sordid and sorry reign of Ahaz. Verse 26, Now the rest of his acts, and of all his ways, first and last, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers. They buried him in the city, even in Jerusalem. But they brought him not into the sepulchres of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his stead. Now we come to Hezekiah, and here we have one of the five periods of revival that came to this nation. Now, you would think that after this period of Ahaz, there'd be no hope for that nation. They were depleted of their resources. They had been at war. They had been betrayed. And you would think that there was no help at all for them. Well, Hezekiah came to the kingdom, I think, for such a time as this, because he's God's man. Notice verse 1 of chapter 29. Hezekiah began to reign when he was five and twenty years old. He reigned nine and twenty years in Jerusalem. Now, his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. Now, you see that his mother and his grandfather are mentioned here, but not his father. His father's old Ahaz, and apparently he had a godly mother, apparently he had a godly grandfather. And that influenced this young man, Hezekiah. Now we are told he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. 
Now, we've talked about him before when we were back in Second Kings, and we were told at that time, back in Second Kings 18.5, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Now, here is a man that is outstanding. When you begin with David and you come down through the list of all 20 of the kings that followed, well, 21 kings with Solomon, that followed David, there's not one of them that can equal Hezekiah. He's the outstanding one. And there were several great men and men that turned to God. Now, this man Hezekiah led in, I think, probably one of the greatest revivals. And we've had it in Second Kings. We have it here now in Second Chronicles, here in the 29th chapter and the 30th chapter. And we'll follow through with it into the 31st chapter. And then we'll go into the 32nd chapter. And all of this is about Hezekiah. And we've said that Chronicles is God's viewpoints, what God takes delight in. Evidently, God took great delight in Hezekiah. And then when we get to Isaiah the prophet, you will find out in the center of his book of Isaiah, there are several chapters that are historical, not prophetic. And they have to do, well, you guessed it, with Hezekiah. Three times in the Word of God we're told about this man. And friends, he led in a great revival and I think probably one of the greatest revivals. And they did have several great revivals. Now, there was in the revival that he had a negative side. It's not in Chronicles for the very simple reason. This is God's viewpoint. This is seeing it as God sees it. And God is noticing the positive side. And now, what was the negative side? Well, the negative side was just simply this that these people had gone into idolatry. The temple was closed up. And they did have there that brazen serpent that Moses, you know, had made. And they'd kept it there. And now they were beginning to worship it. And we're told here, you have to go back to Second Kings 18, verse 4 to get this. It says, "...he removed the high places." broke the images, cut down the groves, break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For under those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehustan. Now, what does that mean? That means, well, it's just brass. It's nothing. So that the first thing that he did was this. He got rid of this thing that was a stumbling block, because that which had been actually the basis of salvation for Israel at one time now becomes an object of worship. It becomes an idol, a stumbling block to the people. But it's just brass. That's all it was, just Christmas jewelry. And there are those today that worship the symbol of the cross. They feel like there's some merit in having a cross around. Friends, there's no merit in the cross, even if you had the original one. Wouldn't be any merit in it at all. This man here, he was a great man of God, friends. You can bow down. I mean, you can worship, actually. You can worship 
in the kitchen. You could worship the spigot because it gives you water. You could worship the window because you could give it credit for light. You could worship your stove because it furnishes warmth and heat. And you could worship the automobile. May I say to you, a great many people today worship a television screen. They bow down to it several times during the day. My friend, may I say to you, there's no merit in objects. The merit is in God, of course. And that's the important thing. And so he got rid of that which was a stumbling block. Now, there's the positive side, and we're told here what he did. Verse 3, he in his first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now, they had nailed to the doors of the temple. Nobody was using it. Ahaz had, had it closed up. But now this man opens them up for the first time over a long period of time. And now they begin to clean everything up. He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together into the east gate. And he said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. And believe me, friends, that was quite a thing. There was return to holy living to honesty and to integrity. And that was something that was needed. We've got too much of this homogenized Christianity today. Just mix everything together. And then, will you notice many other things here that was to be confession. Our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They've forsaken him. They've turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, turned their backs Also, they've shut up the doors of the porch, put out the lamps, have not burned incense, nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place under the God of Israel. You see, they have deserted God altogether. Now, notice what this man Hezekiah does. Verse 20, Then Hezekiah the king rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord. He set a pretty good example. He took a public stand for God. And I think that today that that is one of the things that's probably needed as much as anything else is to take a public stand for God on the part of God's people. And we need to take a public stand today in the office where you work, in the shop where you work, in your social gathering. We need today to take a stand for God. Now, we are told something else about this man. He gave an invitation to others to come and worship God. Now, I pass over so many of the wonderful things that he did and come to chapter 30, verse 1. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. Now, his father carried on warfare against the northern kingdom, and they took them captive. You might think that Hezekiah would become king with a spirit of vengeance in his heart, a spirit of getting even. But notice, he opens up the temple of God, restores the worship, and gives a public testimony. Now he sends an invitation up to the northern kingdom. He said, you join us in worshiping God. 
What a marvelous, wonderful thing this is. And there is a return, you see, to the Word of God, which I think is very tremendous here. For instance, in verse 15 and 16, we're told, Then they kill the Passover on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed, sanctified themselves, and brought in the burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. And they stood in their place after their manner, according to the law of Moses, the man of God, the priests sprinkled the blood which they received of the hand of the Levites. Now, you see what's happening? They're returning back to the Word of God. Oh, how we need that today, and we're beginning to see it. They read the Word of God. They returned to the Word of God. They realized it in their lives, and they were hearing and doing it. May I say to you that I probably sound like a square today, but there are things taking place even in our day. And may I say that the Lord Jesus has to be glorified and honored if blessing is going to come to the people. Now, he led in this reform. He went to the temple. He set a good example. And he took all the rulers of the city with him, and they went to the house of the Lord. He sent out invitations to his enemies. The northern kingdom had not been friendly. His father Ahaz had fought against them. He sent an invitation to them to come down and worship and to celebrate the Passover. And now they are returning back to the Word of God. Now, all of this means that we have quite a remarkable man that we're dealing with here. And that man, of course, is Hezekiah. And I'd like for you to notice a little sidelight. Then I want to say two things about this man that's quite remarkable. And then a word about revival in our day and the possibilities of it. Now, will you notice that in verse 17, there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore, the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean to sanctify them unto the Lord. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. Yet did they eat the Passover... Otherwise, then it was written, but Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon everyone. Now, I think that's one of the loveliest things this king did. He returned the people to God and to God's Word and sent out these invitations. And the northern kingdom, many came down out of these different tribes here to worship. And it was a marvelous gesture. But you see, these people hadn't had the Word of God all their lives. They'd been living in the northern kingdom in the place of idolatry, and yet they had a hunger and desire to want to serve God and obey Him, and they came down, and they were supposed to have been cleansed, prepare their hearts for the Passover, and they weren't. And they went ahead and ate it without knowing that. And it was told Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, he prayed for them. And he said, the good Lord pardon everyone. Isn't that a lovely thing that he did because of the ignorance of these people? And he went on to pray that prepareth his heart to seek God. The Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary, 
and the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Now, wasn't that a marvelous, wonderful thing? It reveals that the form and the ceremony was not the important thing. It was the condition of the hearts of the people. And what a glorious, wonderful thing that you have here. Now, I want you to look at this man because we find that he went out and destroyed the idols because his father, Ole Ahaz, had brought in idolatry and there were idols everywhere. Not only idolatry, we're told in chapter 31, verse 1, now when all this was finished, all Israel that was present went out to the cities of Judah. They broke the images in pieces, cut down the groves, threw down the high places and the altars out of all Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim, also in Manasseh, until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned every man to his possession into their own cities. And then it was a period of great reformation that took place. All right? This is the man that's leading in all this. First of all, let me say that he was a man of faith. And when I say that, I mean something by that more than is meant today when we hear that the present-day popular faith and Bible faith are actually not the same. This is what I mean. A member of a certain ism, he told me that there were four things that you had to do to be saved. I asked for it. I asked him, I said, what do you think you have to do to be saved? And I won't mention the four things, but one of them was faith. And I told him, I said, I don't agree with you with any of them. He was a little shocked. He said, well, certainly you believe in faith because I know you preach that. Well, I said, I don't mean faith like you mean faith. I said, all that you are doing is trying to say that if you believe hard enough, you see the modern conception of faith, it reminds me of the old country fair that we used to have, the county fair when I was a boy. There was always there a place where there was a weight and there was a place like a thermometer and there was a big sledgehammer, and you come up and you hit this thing, and it would knock this weight up that thermometer. You'd see who could, you know, knock it to highest. And some fellow'd come along with his girl, and they'd challenge him, and he'd take off his coat, and spit on his hands, and he'd swing that hammer, and he'd hit that as hard as he could, and he'd see if he could ring the bell up there. Now, he made a supreme effort. He'd try hard. And it was just nothing in the world but just an effort. And therefore, a great many people say, oh, if I can believe hard enough, you see. Well, believe me, friends, faith is not a psychological response to anything. It's not that at all. Faith is not in the feelings, but it's an accomplished fact. Faith is that which is wrought in the soul by the Holy Spirit. It's a conviction that's born in the spirit of man. You remember the Lord Jesus said to Simon Peter when he made that great confession of faith in Christ, he says, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Therefore, you see, faith is not self-meritorious. As someone has said, it's a germ righteousness. It's not that at all. 
We're told by grace are ye saved through faith. Well, it's merely the instrument. Christ is the Savior, and it's the object of faith. Remember, Spurgeon said, It's not thy hold on Christ that saves thee. It's Christ. It's not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It's Christ. It's not even thy faith, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit. Just to believe enough. Well, there's no merit in faith. You could believe the wrong thing. Millions of Mohammedans died as martyrs. They were fanatics. Faith brings nothing that it might take all. Faith says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And it trusts God. Now, this man... Hezekiah trusted God. Then he was a man of prayer. Chapter 31, you have all these many religious reforms that he carried out. And there will be reformation if the Lord Jesus saves you, my friend. He's going to change your life. Remember, he said to that crowd of scribes that day, which is easier to say to that man, your sins be forgiven you, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, they wouldn't answer. They were afraid to. But had they answered, they would have had to have said, well, it's just as easy to do one as the other. It's just as difficult to do one as the other, because God will have to do both. My friend, the Lord Jesus said, I knew you'd have to say that because I'm going to say to him, rise, take up your bed and walk, because I've forgiven him his sin. Now, Christ has forgiven you your sin. You've taken up your bed and you've walked, friends. You've walked away from an old life. You've walked away from your old sins, and you change. And if you haven't walked away, you're still paralyzed for sin today. Oh, this man here was a real man of faith in Christ, and it changed his life. And he's changing the kingdom, too, by the way. Then in chapter 32, then it looks like that God let night come down over his reign. Sennacherib came down from Assyria again and made an attack. And he was ready to make an attack upon the city of Jerusalem, and he began by terrifying the inhabitants. We saw that back in Kings. He went out and said it loud so all could hear it, loud and clear, that no one could deliver out of the hands of Sennacherib, that no God had ever been able to deliver any people. If they thought their God to deliver them were wrong. And what happened? Well, we're told in verse 20, And for this cause, Hezekiah the king and the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos prayed and cried to heaven. Now, this man was a man of prayer, and a real man of prayer. And he looked to God, and God delivered the city. Now, not only that, but in verse 24, chapter 32, we're told, In those days Hezekiah was sick to the death, and he prayed unto the Lord, and he spake unto him, he gave him a sign. Now, I went into this in a great deal of detail when we were back in Kings, in Second Kings, because it was very personal to me, as I have cancer, I'm not cured yet by any means, and this becomes very personal to me. God told Hezekiah, you're going to die. And believe me, Isaiah came in and told him that. And Hezekiah went in and prayed before God. 
And God extended his life 15 years. God heard his prayer. And I think God heals. I believe in divine healing. But I also believe in calling the doctor also. And Hezekiah, they put a poultice of figs on this boil. It could have been a cancer or whatever it was. And God healed him and gave him 15 more years. Now, here's a case, though, where actually the man had lived his life, served his day and generation, and we find here God calls attention to it. He accumulated a great deal of wealth. You see, the kingdom had become very poor. Now they got a great deal of wealth. And he exposed all of that to ambassadors from Babylon, which he should not have done. And that, of course, ultimately brought the king of Babylon against his kingdom later on. Then we're told, verse 32, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness. Behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the chiefest of the sepulchres of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death. And Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. Hezekiah had been the best king, now the worst king of all. His son, Manasseh, comes to the throne. But I want you to notice something here that I think is very important to note. That God today, in our day, is sovereign as he was then in this matter of revival. The wind bloweth where it listeth, our Lord said. You heareth the sound thereof. Thou canst not tell whence it cometh or where it goeth. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. You have to recognize that only God can send the revival. God is sovereign in this matter, and the Holy Spirit is. God's not a Western Union boy or a bell boy that you just push a button and he'll come. You can't give commands to God. I hear today, I command you, Lord, that you do this. You're not commanding him to do anything, my friend. He alone can send revival. And very frankly, you remember in the days of Elijah, even when the prophets of Baal had screamed themselves hoarse, yelled like fanatics, they weren't able to bring down fire upon the sacrifice. And now Elijah, he lays the stones in order, and he puts the wood there and the sacrifice on it and pours on water. Then he prays. And he was a man of like passions as we are. In other words, he's saying to the Lord there, he said, Lord, all we can do is just get the stones together, get a little order here, and put the wood here and the sacrifice here, but the fire you will have to send, and it'll be up to God. And God responded at that time. Now, I believe today that we're seeing a movement I thought at first confined just to young people. But it's not. It's among young married couples. And as one said to me, he's a man, I would say, in his 40s. I consider him young. And he has a couple boys, 10, 12 years old, and they're getting away from him. And he told me, he says, I've got to have some answers for some problems. And I found out 
I thought I could always solve my problems, but I need God. And today there is a turning to the Word of God. I rejoice in it. I see it now everywhere. And very candidly, I never saw that in my ministry in the church. This movement is largely outside of the church today. And I've seen in meetings that we've had now all over this country, I've seen young people come in by the scores. They never came to conferences before, never seemed to be interested. And then I've seen older people the same way, a real interest in the Word of God. Now, unfortunately, there are some pastors today and some religious leaders trying to capitalize on it. So they're feeding these young people a bunch of garbage. They're giving them this hard rock music. I don't buy it. And they're giving them a great deal of other things except the Word of God. And you remember our Lord said, when your son asks for bread, don't give him a stone and certainly don't give him hard rock. Give him the Word of God. Give him the real Word of God. I think this is the hour, friends, to get the Word of God out. Now, I'm not saying there's a revival on it. There's not. I don't know whether it will be or not. I'm staying on the sidelines today, and as I go about, I told a bunch of these young people, I've told them in about a half a dozen states now, I said, I find out they're listening to our radio program. I say, I'm a square. You don't know how square I am. But they still want to hear the Word of God. And one of them came to me and says, well, we listen to you because you tell it like it is. Well, that's the only way I know how to tell it. I've been telling it that way for years, friends, but nobody listened. (laughs) But today, they're beginning to listen. Are we on the verge of something? I don't know. I'm just praying that the Lord send it. And I'm going to be very frank with you. If it comes, it'll come, and he'll be the one that'll send it. And I just get my raincoat out in case the showers of blessing come. And I just think I'll not even put the raincoat on. I've never seen a revival in my day. I'd really like to see one, wouldn't you? Now, let me give a challenge to you in this moment that's left to me. Why don't you make an inventory of your own personal life? If you want God to move in on you, let me put these five things down briefly. Am I honest? Ask yourself that question. Are you? Am I truthful? Are you? Am I faithful? Can you be depended on? Am I pure? Are you really in this dirty day and uh, filthy pictures and filthy language? Am I pure? And then, am I dedicated? Are you really a dedicated child of God? Moody heard a man say, that the world has yet to see what God can do with a man that's fully yielded to him. Moody said, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. And for my money, Moody was that man. But at the end of his life, he said, I heard Henry Varley say that. And I can say the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully yielded to him. Oh, my friend, let's get into the stream today and let the water of life Lo, let's get out the Word of God.